0: Good evening everyone, and welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. My name is Sean O'Neill, I'm the Director of Public Programs, and I welcome you here tonight acknowledging that we are on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. I work in the Public Programming and Learning Department here at the AGO, where we present talks, performances, screenings, special events, camps, courses, and all kinds of other programs for more than 300,000 people every year. Tonight is one of those programs, and I'm really grateful for you all to come out on a beautiful night to join us for a sold out talk on the life and work of Georgia O'Keeffe. Before I introduce our esteemed speaker, I would like to thank some of our partners and supporters, um, those people and organizations who made this exhibition possible. Uh, I hope most of you have have had the chance to see it already. Um, Georgia O'Keeffe is organized by the Tate Modern in collaboration with the AGO and Bank Austria Kunstforum. Um, I would like to thank our supporting sponsor, the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and our supporters, Tony Comper in memory of Elizabeth, Nance Gelber, and Daniel Bjarnason, our government partner, the Government of Canada, and our media partner, The Globe and Mail. Uh, Before we begin, I do want to mention some of you may have seen the setup downstairs in Walker Court on your way in. Shortly after tonight's talk, we'll be presenting the first in our free summer concert series, We've partnered with RPM, Revolutions Per Minute, which is a global new music platform, collective and record label, dedicated to promoting indigenous music from across Turtle Island and around the world. The program is called Other Worlds, and it will feature the New York-based composer and violinist Laura Ortman and Toronto-based Anishinaabe singer-songwriter Ainsley Simpson. Uh, The concert starts at 7.30, it is free, and uh, if you're so inclined, stop in on your way out. But first, the talk and the person you're all here to see. Born in Romania, Georgiana Olyaric is the Associate Curator of Canadian Art at the AGO. Uh, We've worked together for nearly a decade, so I can tell you that Georgiana's rigor, dedication, and passion for her work, and in particular her advocacy for the work of women artists, is unparalleled within these walls. Uh, She is the Coordinating Curator of Georgia O'Keeffe at the AGO, and some of you may have seen some of her other recent exhibitions, including... Picturing the Americas, Landscape Painting from Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic, Introducing Susie Lake, The Passion of Kathleen Munn, and Betty Goodwin Work Notes, just to name a few. And later this summer and fall, Georgiana will be at work again installing the shows Rita La Fire and Light, which she is co-curating with Juan Bush, and which opens in just a couple of weeks and Florin Stettheimer Painting Poetry, organized by the AGO and the Jewish Museum in New York, and that opens later this year. She's very busy. She's also the mother of two twin teenage boys, and please join me in welcoming Georgiana to the stage.
1: Someone is waving to me from the crowd. Um, thank you all for coming this evening. It really is an extraordinary moment to be together. I know you're all for, here for O'Keefe, although I did see some Romanians in the crowd. So thank you for coming. Um, let me start by saying that it has been uh, an extraordinary past few months. it have been profoundly Inspiring. We began actually installing on April 3rd, and it happened to be somewhat of an anniversary. On April 3rd, 1917, exactly 100 years ago, it was when Georgia O'Keeffe first had her solo exhibition, her very first solo exhibition, open in New York at 291. And as we began, with each crate that we opened, we were overwhelmed by a sense of tremendous beauty and profound intensity of a singular vision refined and expressed with such precision and originality, it is really difficult to contain um, the great honour it has been to bring this exhibition to the Art Gallery of Ontario. In Canada, and I would say uh, especially in English speaking Canada, we think we know O'Keeffe Here where her influence has reverberated over the century in the work of those early Canadian modernist artists who have cited her as a kindred spirit and also in that of contemporary artists who have cited her as well as a great inspiration and also as a result of um, her inclusion in a number of group exhibitions, uh, thematic exhibitions, not only at the AGO but across the country. And I would also add very importantly that we think we know O'Keeffe because of the way that Canadians feel about nature, the way that uh, Canadians commune with it, nature as a never-ending source of identity and expression, the bigness of the sky, the endless trees, the infinity of the horizon, the spirit of the land, the way so many people are perhaps looking forward to cottage season. For this, O'Keefe feels utterly familiar. Indeed, she feels familial. And yet this exhibition is historic. It is a retrospective of 80 works by O'Keeffe and they span six decades from the 1910s to the 1960s. And it is the very first time that O'Keeffe has had um, such uh, exhibition of such depth and such breadth in Canada. As Sean mentioned, it is the response of the reward of a great partnership with Tate Modern and Bank Forum in Vienna. But it is also very much because of a great partnership that we have with the O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe who is the biggest lender to the exhibition. And even more than their generosity, what is extraordinary about the O'Keeffe Museum is their commitment to sharing O'Keeffe's work beyond U.S. borders, across oceans in fact. And this is where I will say because the United States of America, um, both in institutions and in people, they tend to guard O'Keeffe so very closely and so tightly, not only her works, but also the way that she has been interpreted. Indeed, in 1927, a journalist writing in her column, and the column was called Americans We Like, she proclaimed, O'Keeffe is America's. And this possessive nationalism has endured to this day, which makes getting loans incredibly difficult. Uh, but thanks to the O'Keeffe Museum, who indeed shares the exact say, the exact opposite feeling, uh, O'Keeffe's work is currently uh, touring Australia in the company of two Australian modernists, Margaret Preston and Grace Cosington Smith. I think the fact that O'Keeffe is in both hemisphere at once, I think she would really appreciate the balance and harmony of this idea. We think we know O'Keeffe because O'Keeffe is larger than life and she has achieved this iconic status within her own lifetime and in part because of the way in which she fashioned her own image once she moves to New Mexico and her status has only endured to gain more momentum to compel more attention as time goes by. This in and of itself is a marvel because very few artists cross over from the art world into the popular imagination to on one hand receive critical acclaim and scholarly attention as well as become a cultural symbol. And this of course can have a double edge. So I'm showing you a screen grab from last fall during the U.S. election. Uh, this is Samantha Bee, for frontal, and you may be able to guess what she's talking about. Uh, last October, uh, if you remember, there was a video, a leaked video, Donald Trump uh, was discussing his attitude towards women, and what Samantha Bee decided to do is criticize the media for their unwillingness to say the word that Trump used. So instead, what she did, she created a monologue, a one minute long monologue, a string of euphemisms for all of the ways that I think invented ones, old ones, out of fashion ones, uh, in order to speak to this, to this word. It really was just a relentless barrage of words. And the accompanying visual, as you can see, is a Georgia Keith painting uh, from the MFA Houston Collection. And indeed the painting and the artist need no identification because O'Keeffe's work is as iconic as it is a stereotype. Um, Her her work has become shorthand in the popular imagination, a visual euphemism if you like, and this is why the joke works. I also like to think that Samantha B. Full frontal writers are incredibly informed people who also know O'Keeffe's own personal reluctance to speak of her paintings this way, so it's even just that much more layered and inspired, this use of um, this image. The image actually comes from here. I wanted to make sure that you knew where it comes from. It was circulating widely at the time uh, because it is from the opening of the O'Keeffe exhibition in Taint last July, and this image was part of the press package. This kind of familiarity that um, she has can have an undesired effect on the work of an artist. As art historian Griselda Pollock writes in her essay on O'Keefe for the publication, it is a kind of overexposure that can make the art almost invisible. But it is the rare artist who achieves this kind of fame, this kind of play in the popular imagination. And it is an even rarer occurrence, and I think O'Keeffe would really not like me talking about it this way, but it is true, for being an artist who is a woman. And it is not unimportant, because it also contributes to the tendency to sensationalize O'Keeffe's story and focus on the details of her personal life while the artistic achievements are secondary, at least in the headlines. And O'Keeffe sensed this when she said, men put me down as the best woman painter and insisted, I am one of the best painters. I'm showing you this review, this again as a review of the exhibition at Tate Modern. Um, I'm showing it to you because of the bias towards the scandalous, although maybe that has to do with the British press as well, and remarkably for the fact that they used an image of O'Keeffe when she's 80 years old, staring us down unequivocally, she prevails. Despite it all, O'Keeffe in the end prevails as she has from the very beginning for one key and fundamental reason, her art, And I'd like to say I'm very, very proud that the Canadian press, uh, when we opened, was much more polite about O'Keeffe, that she is a lot more than uh, erotic flowers. But it is indeed because of her art that O'Keeffe resonates. This is why we keep returning to O'Keeffe. Specifically, it is the power of her artistic achievements, that is to say, O'Keeffe's ability to pursue and hone her own singular vision authentic, autonomous, and most importantly, alive. She said, I seem to be hunting for something of myself out there, something in myself that will give me a symbol for all this, a symbol for the sense of life. All this in order to create a visual language through which her work opens up for all of us, what she called the wideness and the wonder of the world. O'Keeffe's pursuit was relentless and fierce. She was unapologetic in her belief in her art and herself with many obstacles to overcome. And perhaps much like her description of the high desert of New Mexico, her search, like the desert, knows no kindness with all its beauty. And I'm showing you now the mountain that allegedly O'Keeffe left her husband for. Pedernal, It's a flat-top mountain she saw in the distance from her home uh, in Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico and painted many times. And it is where she requested that her ashes be scattered um, once she passed. O'Keeffe's art and life are inextricably intertwined. And while she may have insisted at the end that where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant, and that it is what I have done with where I have been that should be of interest, it is precisely because of the crucial choices she makes in art and in life, intuitive, powerful, and often difficult choices, that she was able to live life and make art on her own terms and in her own space, indeed to achieve what she had set out to do very early on, to express myself. Things I feel and want to say. Things I have no words for. To make, as she put it, my unknown known. She said, making your unknown known is the important thing and keeping the unknown always behind you. It's a compelling proposition and one um, that we hope to convey with this exhibition. So what I'd like to do this evening is go through a handful of works in order to get to know O'Keeffe better and to speak to some of the critical circumstances that continue to frame and influence the way in which we see O'Keeffe. And of course, some special treats that we have here at the AGO that were not part of the tour. Highly trained, and the leading art schools in uh, Chicago, New York, and Virginia. She first worked as a commercial artist and then as an art teacher in South Carolina. But in 1915, O'Keeffe makes one of her very first critical choices. She decides to start anew, to strip away what I had been taught and to work exclusively in charcoal in order to express the things in my head that are not like what anyone has taught me, shapes and ideas so near to me. And O'Keeffe called these charcoal specials to underscore that these highly abstract images have particular meaning to her. She continued to work only in charcoal for the next few years. And while she claims that she is undoing her training by doing this, and literally, she was teaching during the day, and in the evening, she would come to her small room in West Texas or um, South Carolina, and on the floor or in the back of the door, she would just keep making these charcoals for herself. And while she claims that she was undoing her training, what O'Keeffe, in fact, was doing was to come into her own by internalizing and responding to the art and principles of her own professor, Arthur Wesley Dow, whose teachings she was imparting on her own students at the time. And I'm showing you a page from his book, uh, Composition, It was published at the end of the 19th century and then published again, second and third edition, 1912 and 1913. And this is where he sets out his principles as well as uh, creates exercises uh, for uh, teachers to give to his or her students. Dow wrote that a master in art is always intensely individual, and that no work has art value unless it reflects the personality of its author. The finest things are certainly the product of feeling and trained judgment. Artistic skill cannot be given by dictation, or acquired by reading, that continued. It does not come by merely learning to draw, by imitating nature, or by any process of storing in the mind facts. The power is within. The question is how to reach it and how to use it. Arguably, harnessing her power within becomes O'Keeffe's project for the rest of her career. This emphasis on the self, that inner feeling, inner knowledge, is what O'Keeffe took on as her lifelong pursuit. It is the thing I am that makes the work, she wrote in the mid-1930s. In 1915, she was so exhilarated by the charcoals that she was making, she sent them to Anita Pulitzer, who was a friend and also a photographer, a choice that really altered the course of her life and launched her career because it was based exclusively on these charcoals, these very early charcoals, that uh, Pulitzer, with not exactly O'Keefe's permission, uh, gives them, actually shows them, to Alfred Stieglitz. And it is really exclusively based on the strength of the work. And he had no idea who she was. It was really him recognizing something in the drawing, something that she of herself had put in them, exclusively based on this he decides to include them in an exhibition. What artist doesn't dream of this kind of discovery, Uh, whether she was purposeful in sending them to Pulitzer or not, this is what happens. And it was 100 years ago, as I mentioned, that she had her first exhibition at 291, the gallery in New York, where um, it was very well known and highly respected for being one of the very first and few places when one could see modern art. We have to imagine New York before the Met. No, that's not true. The Met was there, but everybody thought of it as a young museum. Um, So there was no MoMA, no Guggenheim, no Whitney. There were not a lot of galleries and Stieglitz was really the very first to bring European advanced art, Bruncouche, Cézanne, Duchamp, to New York. And this is where you went to see modern art. And indeed, uh, he was already an internationally renowned photographer. He was a very powerful person. Um, And also, he was recognized for having an eye for really recognizing young talent, and in particular, uh, he was very interested in American artists and really giving them a presence and a voice, and quite extraordinarily, both uh, men and women artists. O'Keeffe was born in 1887 on a dairy farm near Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. She was the second of seven children in a Dutch-Irish and she was 29 years old when the exhibition opened and she missed it because she was teaching in west texas so when she arrives in new york in may 1917 stieglitz actually reinstalls it for her and what you see uh, is a photograph of the uh, of her very first exhibition um It was really in in this moment when Stieglitz and O'Keeffe meet that their creative and personal relationship begin and her artistic career is launched. It is also when he begins to take photographs of her and that very first photograph I show you is from this very first encounter. Um, and he ends up taking 350 photographs of her over their time together. And I know that 350 photographs these days is nothing, um, but for Stieglitz and, of course, these are meticulously uh, taken photographs and printed and so on, they're extraordinary valuable things. O'Keefe moves to New York uh, in the summer of 1918 and she begins at last to paint in oil in color as she says, I paint because color is a significant language to me, once more revealing her search for self expression through abstract composition. And in these large paintings, she is interested in music. A preoccupation with the void, seeking a harmony and a balance of space in framing infinity, the way that the folds of color appear to both contain and create the ovoid space, of blue and green. Rooted in her experiences in the natural world, these are sensual works. They are the way O'Keeffe experiences the world fully through all her senses, sight and touch and sound through the color vibrations. To her, this abstract composition, um, and it is still one of the most important early works that is still in private hands, Reflects sound waves, undulating forms evoking the notes of a musical composition. But it is not meant to be a literal translation of sound into color, but rather to evoke an all-encompassing feeling. The way that music moves and stirs emotion in the listener, and in this way it is an encounter and an exchange. Stieglitz and the critics' interpretation tended toward a much more Freudian reading, spoke about her creativity located in her womb and the attendant repressed and expressed sexual desires of being a woman. And once formulated this way, um, this reading is not to be undone despite O'Keeffe's resistance and rejection of such interpretation. Um, These readings are now perceived perhaps as limited as an essentialist view, but they're nonetheless widespread. I think that the sensuality that is so palpable in these early abstractions speaks to the core of human experience, that feeling of being alive and conscious through all of your senses, connected, touching the center of what it means to be alive, awake, aware, beyond language. Unmitigated. Abstraction allowed O'Keeffe to develop her own visual language. Whether her paintings referenced a recognizable subject or not, abstraction and representation are not mutually exclusive for O'Keeffe. And as you can well imagine, for an artist who has five biographies and counting, often the O'Keeffe Museum curator, Carolyn Kastner, is asked uh, by visitors to say, to tell them something that nobody else knows, a secret about O'Keeffe. And she says, I can tell you a secret, O'Keeffe is an abstract artist, always. Um, and the exhibition really stresses this, and you will notice, that for those of you who have seen it, that the first large space is really, uh, the gallery is filled almost merely with abstractions. And I always encourage visitors to think about the fact that you made these paintings before women had the right to vote in the United States of America, and of course Canada as well, um, thinking through the kind of obstacles that were in the way that we kind of uh, forget to think about. O'Keeffe's work is a deeply felt response to her surroundings, and she gets to know herself and a new place by painting it. Yet first it must attract and hold her attention. O'Keeffe responds to New York City, the view out of her apartment window on the 30th floor of the Shelton Hotel, as a challenge, a kind of witty and willful act to take on a subject that she was told was an impossible idea, that even the men it had not done too well with it. And here again, we can see how O'Keeffe is making her own Dao's principles of composition, that what is fundamental is that there must be a thorough grounding in the elementary relations of space cutting in simple massing of dark and light. Space cutting is such a powerful phrase, and I urge you to walk around the exhibition and take note how nearly in all of her paintings O'Keeffe cuts space. In that early charcoal, you will recall those vertical lines and then the way in which she framed the void. um, She collapses space and cuts into it. And here in this uh, painting of New York, she divides the canvas on a diagonal using contrast of dark and light, color and geometry. It is the specter of the city at night, the lit avenue and the dark skyscraper emerging as though floating. The other thing to note in this canvas is this elongated proportion that persists in her career. It's long and narrow, sometimes it's tall and sometimes it's wide. And this relationship uh, appealed to O'Keeffe and she returned to it again and again. And again, it can be traced back to Dao and um, his reverence for Japanese painting and screens and scroll painting. O'Keeffe's interest in architecture is not temporary. The subject of buildings and dwellings preoccupies her, also in New Mexico, until very late in her career. She lives in New York with Stieglitz, they marry in 1924, but begins to spend long summers at Lake George, at the Stieglitz summer property, that is a period that's little studied until recently because she famously said that she hated the green and she hated all the people that came visiting, but in fact um, it is at Lake George that she begins to formulate the next set of critical choices that shape the second half of her career. And uh, this is a painting of maple tree at Lake George. Uh, And it really is her response to nature and land above all that captivates. And she's best known for taking on subject matter like this tree and making it truly her own. Once more, you can see how she divides space, cutting it in a way that really should not work, so very symmetrically and vertically in half. And yet the composition has such balance and harmony and it's so dynamic. She knows, as Dow says, how to fill space in a beautiful way. It is also at Lake George that she has a garden and grows petunias, and these are the very first flowers that she paints that lead to her iconic callus and irises and poppies and of course, the jimson weed. I think O'Keeffe's paintings of flowers are the most difficult for us to really see, to know what to make of them. To see them free of the burden of how they've been valued and commodified, and of course this one uh, set a record at auction in 2014, once more catapulting O'Keeffe from the art world into the culture at large. We have to work really hard to negotiate our way beyond what all these paintings have been laden with, including O'Keeffe's own sustained resistance throughout her career to a neurotically evocative reading. And I cannot tell you how many people come up to me and tell me they are vaginas. I cannot tell you. (laughs) So there's the debate. In any case. These paintings offer that most elusive of artistic achievements. It is an image that is at once profound in its aesthetic simplicity and compelling in its ordinariness. And it is predicated, as O'Keeffe insists, on taking time to see. Nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small we have not time. And to see takes time. So I said to myself, I'll paint what I see, what the flower is to me. And yet there is so much to say formally about the painting, about its monumental scale, the magnification and the cropping, obviously the influence of photography on O'Keeffe, the brutal frontality of it, it's formal, it's cool, it's distant. And these are powerful artistic gestures. And of course to not forget the sheer reality that nature is fecund and to remember that this is part of being alive and aware and awake and I would argue that this is a kind of arousal. Ultimately, words fail to convey what it feels like to stand in front of it, to really take time to see, as O'Keeffe invites us to do. And these are two things that we are really bad at these days, I would say, seeing and taking time. And this was even her complaint in her own time when she was painting them, but I think now more than ever. There's actually an art historian at Harvard and part of her teaching first class of art history She makes all of her students select a painting that's in the Boston Area Museum and she makes them sit in front of it for three hours, taking notes of everything as the painting very slowly reveals itself to the student. And she writes about this. She writes about how even a painting that she thought she knew so well going through this exercise, uh, she understood the painting so much more. more. There were things that in fact she never took time to see. And sometimes with her flower paintings, with O'Keeffe's flower paintings, there is simply nothing else to do but to simply say, they are so beautiful and they are so exquisite because they are and in our own acknowledgement and our appreciation, it awakens a sense of power in our very selves. We return to O'Keefe, I believe, not because each time we think we see something new, but rather because each time we see something more. I also want to tell you a little bit of our very own painting. This is The Eggplant from 1925. Um, and in um, 1925, March 1925 it was included in an exhibition in the Anderson Gallery. It was curated by Alfred Stieglitz. And Doris Christus Mills, who is a remarkable Canadian woman, artist and person, um, she often went to New York to see O'Keeffe exhibitions. And she saw this painting and she decided that she wanted to buy it and Stieglitz refused to sell it to her because it would mean that a painting by O'Keeffe would leave the United States. In fact, she convinced him, and I think she convinced him because of her profound com- uh, commitment to modernism in North America in general and a shared sensibility that they had. Um, and it was the very first painting and for many decades the only painting that was owned outside of the United States. It's remarkable that we actually own it. Um, So after she convinces Stieglitz to sell her this painting, um, she meets O'Keeffe in her apartment in the Shelton Hotel, and she later writes, Miss O'Keeffe is very wonderful, silent, sensitive as a medium, observing all things and transmitting them within herself. And it's probably uh, the fact that Stieglitz could sense that this was Hustus Mill's reaction to O'Keeffe that he was finally convinced to sell it to her. And of course, there's the money. Um, He was that kind of guy. Um, In any case, but to have the last word, uh, Stieglitz writes in a letter to Hustace Mills, uh, as he always has the last word, whether the picture is symbolic or not, I don't know. But it has the plusness, which makes it more than eggplant. And I understand that the eggplant emoji is not something you want to share casually. This is I learned from my children. Anyway, um, aside from that. Um, But for the special occasion uh, of this exhibition, uh, we've owned this painting since 1990, and sometimes we had it on view, and sometimes we didn't, and it simply had the most dreadful frame I had ever seen, and O'Keeffe was very particular about her frame. In fact, she only worked uh, with one framer her whole life, and uh, she, in total, only had eight profiles for her frames. These were designed with steelets, um, and it really was a total presentation for O'Keeffe From the painting to the frame and and as you walk through the exhibition especially at the end you will notice that sometimes she extends the painting onto the frame and the way she made those is she would um, um, have the painting uh, have the um, frame she would uh, what is the word when you request when you ask someone to fabricate your frame um and then uh And then she would make the painting at the same time and then she would put them together and they would match perfectly so you can see that everything is really in her head. So O'Keeffe really thought very hard about uh, how you were meant to experience her painting and this frame was really horrific so then I started to do some investigation to see how the painting was framed originally. Since I knew that it had been in one collection its entire time before it came to the AGO so I went to the archives and literally the last photograph on the last contact sheet as I looked through and I found this photograph, here it is, um, in which it had, and I was almost startled to see this very thin black frame. And then this opened up a number of conversations with our conservators and with the conservators of the O'Keeffe Museum, Dale Concrete. and it turns out that on the back of the stretcher, uh, both the framer and Stieglitz had made all these marks and all these notations, and it led us to understand that this was a very early frame profile that O'Keeffe uh, used, this bullnose lacquered frame, it is a beautiful thing in and of itself. And so working with the O'Keeffe Museum, we were made, we were able to replicate it exactly. And also if you go to the O'Keefe Museum now, they have a wall with their eight profiles, but they were missing this one since it's very, very rare. So they made one for themselves as well. And it is true, and you can see this is the painting as our conservators took it out of its old frame and put it in its new frame. Um, it really is, uh, it really sings. It really is, you understand what O'Keefe was actually trying to do. Uh, But in the late 1920s, um, O'Keefe was seeking new terrain and new subject matter. So in 1929, she travels to New Mexico, and she says, when I got to New Mexico, that was mine. As soon as I saw it, it was my country. I'd never seen anything like it before, but it fitted to me. Exactly. And again, we can hear that intuition, that recognition, that connection, and she makes the choice to pursue it no matter what the personal costs. O'Keefe gets to know a place by painting it, seeing something of herself out there in the desert. The bones seem to cut sharply to the center of something that is keenly alive on the desert, even though it is vast and empty and untouchable and knows no kindness with all its beauty. She collected bones, but she also collected these uh, handmade cloth flowers that were made by Spanish women for funerals. And this painting is the very first time that she paints it to scale, and I show you this painting specifically because I'm super extra proud that it is here at the AGO. It was not part of the Tate or the Vienna installation, and I wanted it specifically as you will see on the wall that it is and you can see how she actually takes the skull and she formally treats it three different ways but also because she tells quite a profound simple story about this painting and how it came to be she was looking at the bones she was looking at the flowers and someone came to the door And she just sticks the flower into the skull uh, and walks to answer the door. And then when she returns, she realizes what has happened. She realizes the composition and this intuition, this recognition, and this connection. She knows that she has to make this painting. These flat, and I also love the way in which she takes kind of new subject matter and old subject matter and tries uh, to create something new. And I want to talk to you very briefly about this painting, even though it is not in the exhibition. It's called Manhattan, and right now um, it is at the Brooklyn Museum. It's part of O'Keeffe's other major retrospective. So this is an artist who can have two and a half major retrospectives around the globe and still maintain and and, um, hold her own. It is really quite remarkable. Um, But again, I wanted uh, to just Quickly talk about this picture um, because again she takes the city of Manhattan and turns it into this totemic cubist collage of bright pink and red and mauve and blue and black and white skyscrapers and it fills the the vertical composition. Again you can see that proportion, that elongated uh, scale that she has. These buildings appear to thrust beyond the edges of the canvas. She exaggerates their scale not only through the high vantage perspective combined with this Titan viewpoint but also so poignantly and unexpectedly by including these three blossoms that serenely float parallel to the surface of the painting around the massive central white block. O'Keeffe's blue, pink, and red decorative flowers at once magnify and irritate the ascribed muscularity of Manhattan's jagged, bulky skyline. She makes it her own. And I think it, and you get a sense of the scale. This is the painting of Brooklyn. To also put it in context, she's really not the only one, although we hardly ever know since history is unfair to some people. Uh, This is Florine Stedheimer and as Sean mentioned, this is an exhibition that's coming to the G.O. in October. And this is Florine Stedheimer's portrait of Manhattan. They were very close friends, Stedheimer and O'Keeffe, and in many ways you would think they could not be more different. said refused to have her work uh, shown in public. In fact, she, she held almost all of her work throughout her life. Um, in fact, O'Keeffe said, in her letter to her, said, why can't you be more like the rest of us and exhibit your paintings? Uh, anyway, this you'll have to come back and see this gorgeous painting in real life. Um, But you can see at the back, that's Radio City Hall that has just been built, and the Statue of Liberty, and the Chrysler Building, and Alwyn Court. And Alwyn Court um, is where the Stetheimers live with her mother and her sisters, and you can see populating this painting. And of course, you cannot miss the large floating flowers. But in this family portrait, the pictorial relationship between the view of the city and the flowers, you could say, is the reverse of O'Keeffe's Manhattan. These flowers are monumental while the city's delicately painted scenery. Stedheimer's New York skyline is subservient backdrop to her Baroque blossoms, heavy with supersaturated colors. And yet while O'Keeffe's luscious yet reductive formality could not appear any more different from Stedheimer's seemingly stylish treatment and idiosyncratic compositional use of flowers, what the artist shared important in thinking about, I think, at this moment, Um, and in thinking about what it means to be modern and what it means to be someone painting in the 1930s, is in fact this revolutionary sense of monumentality, coupled with a very playful seriousness in their approach to subject matter. Distinctly, both artists lay claim to a highly nuanced modernity that is as self-referential as it is visionary. And this is what O'Keeffe pursues vigorously once she moves to New Mexico. And I'm showing you a photograph from our collection. And You can see in the very distance, it's Pedernal, it's that mountain. Um, This uh, is her front view from Ghost Ranch. In 1949, she moves permanently to New Mexico. Uh, Stieglitz dies in 1946, and she has two homes, first Ghost Ranch for summer, and then Abiquiu uh, for the winter. And it is in New Mexico that she really starts to think about place and seriality. And she begins to visit again and again certain places that really uh, offer her sustained meaning. And one of the very, uh, not, not very well-known ones, although we are very lucky to have four from the series, um, is Black Place. So this is a place that was actually quite hard to get to. She actually had to camp to get there. And again, it's a place that she would return again and again over the years, always painting it. And again, in this work that you see sort of later on in the series, and much more highly abstract, you can see the way she splits the canvas, the way she cuts the space. Uh, the way she progresses from a kind of representation to abstraction. This is the way in which O'Keeffe gets to know a place. The other series, um, when continuing to work with the bones, is this pelvis series. But here she has zoomed into the pelvic bone so closely to look at that sky, almost a telescopic zooming into the void. And save for the title, Pelvis, that tells you that it references a bone, it is pure abstraction. In fact, she later spoke of Ellsworth Kelly jokingly saying that I've looked at one of his paintings and thought for a moment that I had done it. Um, in the series, uh, this pelvis series, you can also see echoes of her early abstractions, the way that she's framing the void again, framing infinity through this sharp aperture. And here she is 30 years later, so simplified, so elemental. And sometimes I think about O'Keefe, I think about her almost as an artist who was really making one painting her entire life. And she was just so very lucky to live such a profoundly long life that she got to really hone her vision and at the very end really make the painting that she was always seeking to make. So when I began thinking about O'Keeffe, and I only have two more paintings to talk to you about, Um, you know, the thing about the flowers, you know, scholars and curators, you almost kind of instinctually avoid them. Um, But nonetheless, I love them. Uh, But I had to start elsewhere. Um, And I actually started with this painting and really thinking about how is it that I can responsibly and fully and uh, sensibly really make sense of who O'Keeffe was, what her project was, and in the end, really, what she was trying to achieve. And for me, this is the painting that kind of opened up the way in which I thought about uh, installing the exhibition. This painting is called My Last Door, and it comes, uh, and it's from 1952. Um, She writes a letter, the title comes from the letter that she writes to her dealer. She paints a light one and a red one, and she says, you can call the light one my last door. I hope it is my last door, and then asked that after the show, it be sent back to O'Keefe in New Mexico because she wanted to paint the white whiter, and this is a painting that she does not show again in her lifetime. In fact, she keeps it at Ghost Ranch. Uh, it's on her bedroom, when, uh, bedroom wall, um, and I think it's actually quite fascinating that it is a, you will see a painting of Abiquiu that she holds with her at Ghost Ranch. Um, It really represents her sense of home, and I find this profoundly interesting. The door, I was just mentioning, is actually the door to the close patio at Abiquiu. Um, As I mentioned, her fall and winter home after 1949. And she repeats uh, many, many, many times that this door was the reason she bought the property. She had to have it. The wall with a door in it was something I had to have. In fact, she sees it in 1936 and really takes her 10 years. So this was a woman that when you met her and she wanted something, there was no way that she wasn't going to get it. And in fact, curators uh, talked about what it was like to work with O'Keefe and they said it was really quite easy. You just did everything that she said and everything was really going to work out. Um, But it really was sort of this painting that convinced me that how she lived and where she lived is important. (coughs) That these are crucial choices that she makes. They are intuitive, they are powerful to her, She she pursues them, and what she does with where and how is indeed key, because that quote about the wall with the door in and I had to have it, ends with and was painted many times. This painting is, a series, um, is from a series of 20 or so related works from 1946 to 1960, and we actually have four in the exhibition. Again, as I mentioned, it speaks to me to a number of key elements about O'Keeffe, uh, kind of the offered for me, a way in. And that is that painting is a struggle that sustains her. That through painting, she responds to the creative stimulation and frustration she conjures up for herself. As O'Keeffe said of the wall with the door in it, I'm always trying to paint that door. I never quite get it. It's a curse, the way I feel I must continually go on with that door. She had to continually go on that door, not because she lived with it, but because it kept her engaged and fascinated. The ever-changing light and the ever-changing weather offered limitless ways for her to perceive it. The wall with a door in it was an ongoing active problem to be addressed. If you have an empty wall, you can think on it better. I like a space to thinking. if you can call what I do thinking, she said. It is also that sort of this pictorial tension that interests her. This is another thing I got from this painting, these binary planes of black and white, they offer at once an absence of space and a view into infinity. And it is a compelling totality of meaning and existence. The patio d'ora series re-emphasized to me this the kind of painter that she was, that O'Keefe sought her way through perception, not through logic. She returns to her subject in a non-linear way. She returns again and again as though always renewed, seeing deeper, seeing more clearly, and in this way it is never done. And as I've said, always, 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 it is about form and color and composition to fill space in a beautiful way. And this was her lifelong pursuit. This is a painting she makes when she's 64 years old. And I find that... uh, late work, as it's sometimes called, with artists, can be some of the most revealing work because it really meant that an artist has been able, like I said, to really hone the vision. I'm going to show you the last painting. I think of it as the last painting in the show. This is a painting she makes when she's 75 years old, and you can see both in its scale and the way that it is composed that it really harps back to those early charcoal abstracts. Both in its size and its simplicity, and again, she cuts the space, she cuts the canvas with this calligraphic line. As she said, it is only by selection, by elimination, and by emphasis that we get to the real meaning of things. In 1916, in one of her very first letters to Stevens, she asks him to tell her what he saw in her charcoals that very first time when he saw her and knew nothing about her, because she said. I make them just to express myself. Things I feel and want to say haven't words for. I wonder if I got over to anyone what I want to say. And I argue that by 1963 in this painting, there's absolutely no reason to doubt that indeed she does. This painting is the view that she saw each morning from her bedroom window at Abiquiu. This is the road that takes her from Abiquiu to Española, to Santa Fe, to the rest of the world. This is the the road that opens up the world. With one line, she splits the canvas. With one line, she creates the world. We return to O'Keeffe because to stand in front of one of our works is to be as close as we can ever get to the creative act that transformative act from within, for which there are no words, that act which makes her unknown, known. Thank you.
2: Uh,
0: Thank you Georgiana for- Let's get some art. Yes, okay, good. Uh, For that extraordinary talk, and for your passion, and for your knowledge, and for sharing it with us tonight. We do have some time for some questions, so I'm on this side, and Linda over there is on the other side. Just raise your hand, and please do wait for the microphone, because we'll put this on our podcast channel for people who couldn't get tickets later on. Um, I see a question right in the front, so. Right in front. 1939, she takes a uh, cruise to Hawaii. She experiences space unlike New Mexico, unlike uh, York Beach, Maine, unlike where she grew up. She winds up in that 10-week trip in Hawaii at Iao Valley, where she paints three watercolors and one sketch that are quite descriptive. And then she goes on to paint what she calls Iao Valley 3. That's the fifth one. And that is so unlike where the others, the first were descriptive. This was evocative, suggestive. What happened to her on that cruise? What (laughs) happened to her at Yale Valley?
2: (laughs) Well,
1: and this, you know, thank you for that. And it is true. Uh, She goes to Hawaii, actually, uh, she's invited by Dole company. Uh, to make uh, paintings of pineapples uh, for an advertising campaign and she actually goes uh, also with Ansel Adams. But I will say to that that um, this is in very many ways the issue uh, with O'Keeffe is that her personal life uh, and her paintings they are inextricably linked but it is a question of what is a relevance and what is not. So to plainly say, I have no idea what happened to her on that cruise. I hope something amazing. <laughs> um. but, uh, but, you know, for me, O'Keeffe is someone who experiences the world from within. And uh, then what she puts out there is her process of being able to express that.
2: Uh, Georgiana, I'm very curious as to whether or not there is an answer to this um, how much, uh, and it's this slide exactly that I wanted to see up here, so I'm glad it's there. How much of the way in which she paints is attributable to synesthesia? Mm.
1: So. Uh, it was something that really fascinated her uh, and it was something that was very much in the air this idea um, of synesthesia being a condition where sounds create either colors or shapes in your mind Um, and um, in fact there were synesthesia machines and so on um, and it had to do with the way in which one can translate one sense to the other. I think it had a lot more to do, for her anyway in particular, I think, the way in which uh, music is the most abstract of the arts and um, the way in which you, um, sort of music enhanced her experience, her sensual experience of the world. So I think it had to do a lot with that, with that kind of uh, experience of music which was so important to her. One of the things that she does in uh, Texas, is not only does she begin to make these charcoals on the floor and on the back of the wall and back of the door, but she also teaches herself how to play the violin. So, you know, and she was a, a trained musician. So this is somebody who is really interested fully in um, experiencing the world through all her senses. And as I said, so this is how I make sense of that kind of sensuality that exists, that it's, it's being fully awake in the world. Hi. I found what I thought was really interesting is in none of her work could I see a signature. I -hmm. didn't see, and usually you see that, so I was curious what you thought about that. (laughs) Well, apparently, famously, she said that she doesn't sign her work because people should just recognize it as hers. (laughs) (laughs) There was that. Um, I also uh, think that you know, fundamentally, she's a formalist, right? So every mark, every detail, everything is very, very precise. So when she's thinking about um, the painting plane and she's thinking about space, and, you know, especially in that Manhattan painting, I love that painting, the way those flowers just kind of float, um, that a signature would actually visually interrupt the painting. So, uh, it, and and it's actually very strange to see abstract works uh, where... You know the artist signs it although it is not uncommon but I think you know she had a way with words and always and she, because she also lived such a long time and was highly recorded um she said a funny thing but I think it has more to do with the fact that it would interrupt the sort of the profound um totality of experience that you would have when you stand in front of her work
0: I hope I'm going to put it right, but um, I find her paintings very central, and I know there's a whole discussion with that. Even in the linear paintings, I find them central, and Mm. yet there's no, um, she had no children. There Mm. was no, it's very literally, um, there's no family orientation in this either. It's very um, on subject, and yet her, her paintings are central. So, how, like, what happened there? Did she not want
1: a family? Did she desire to be very alone and very, you know, singular? She did want... Oh, sorry. The question was that she had no children, and yet the paintings are very sensual. So so what was that about? Why, why did she have no children is essentially the thing. So um, she marries Stieglitz, who is 24 years her senior, and he already had a daughter, and he was very, very categorical about not having any children. And in response, she kept her last name. Here you go. That was a great...
2: Um, Hi, I wanted to ask a question about some of the
1: photographs that are included. Oh, yes. Um, There I think, a few were taken by her husband in that centre section. Can you just explain to me the choice to include those several nudes of her? Mm. So the exhibition as it was conceived, um, you know, it is not only historic in Canada, because we've never had such a big exhibition of her work, uh, but also there are no uh, works by George O'Keeffe anywhere in the United Kingdom. In fact, there's very few in all of Europe. And this is, I think, one of the very first exhibitions that is um, organized, curated, conceived, and traveled with no one from the United States really involved. So all the curators are not, you know, and i give you this long, long story, to say that um, in many ways, this is O'Keeffe kind of going global, you know, really presenting her as a major modernist in the world, not just as the American modernist. And in order to create this context, um, you know, uh, uh, Tanya Barson at Tate, who's a curator at Tate, felt that it was really important to create this kind of context because photography was one of the key inspirations for O'Keeffe, and she speaks about photography that way. The photographs by Stieglitz and the way that I've installed them here at the gallery, which is like one space in which they all are has to do with the way I see them is the fact that she um, reinvigorated him and uh, she kind of re-challenged him to create new work. And he had been looking for a long time for a new project, for this project that he had in mind, sort of the modernist project, which was to photograph one subject over his or her entire life. And he found that subject in O'Keeffe, not just because she was a woman, not just because he found her so very attractive, but also uh, because he wa- she was so unbelievably creative in the way that he was interested. Um, in speaking to artists. So for him, that project has to do with formal qualities, it has to do with how do you take a subject and really crop it and cut it and show it. Those pictures are infamous. They became so in 1921 when he first showed them. They, you know, he he showed them in this retrospective of his. There were, I think, 24 of them that he showed. Um, And it was in that moment that O'Keeffe also realized uh, that her own image is as important as her work. And actually, after that moment, I think about after 1923, she no longer lets him take photographs of herself nude because she understands that she has to be sort of in charge of her own own image. those photographs are exquisite photographs, and to me, they are kind of the foil to what's on the other side, which is the equivalence, those, those uh, photographs of clouds that he takes, which are very really sort of a, a radical move in the history of photography. And to locate O'Keeffe in that moment, I thought was really quite critical.
2: Hi. Um, in the exhibit, there's one painting that um, Georgia did in Gaspé. Yeah. My understanding is um, it may have been her only trip to Canada, and I read that she said although she loved the landscape, she hated the weather. (laughs) I'm thinking that's probably true. Uh, A few things about that. I bumped into just a person. I didn't know this person. We started talking about the painting. We both had very strong feelings about it, and it is atypical. It's horizontal and narrow. Um, And she was saying how it was her favorite, and I was thinking, I have a lot of strong, positive feelings about this. And then we both found out that we couldn't find any reproductions of it because Mm -hmm. this this person I just met said she was asking people in the bookstore about a a reproduction of it. And they said, well, they may not have the rights to it, which I'm wondering about. The other thing is, I think, and I wanted you to clarify this, I think that there was about five years after this period where she didn't do any work before the Dole exhibit. And my understanding is, is that she was suffering from a mental health illness. And I wonder if you can add some insight into this because i can't seem to find any clarification about any of this thank you
1: okay so there're many things in there yes in 1932 uh, she goes to the gas bay it's actually the very first time that she leaves the united states in 19- she's 45 years old she had never been outside of the states and it is actually a profoundly important experience for her she in a way she's kind of reconnect with nature she's someone that comes from the prairie and the storm and the sea and the rocks she's these beautiful letters that she writes to stieglitz about she's traveling with um his niece who's also named georgia so it's the georgia and georgia road trip to the gas bay. and you know they run around naked and they, when the tide goes out and, and it's a it's a lovely thing it's a it it's um a beautiful painting, and it is because it's in a private collection that sometimes rights are very complicated. So you're just going to have to come back again and again, look at it. And yeah, time. Time. Um, your second question was about. The... Oh yes, 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 yes. I think that the the. It's a very funny thing that uh, Gloria Steinem once said about her mother who suffered from a number of you know, mental illness issues, and she said she suffered from the mental illness called patriarchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and there are many, many books. It is true, she stopped painting for an entire year, um, and it was very difficult for her. And so... What I will do is I will simply recommend to you uh, that you um, look at Sarah Greeno's book, it's volume one, there are letters of Stieglitz and O'Keefe, and you can see in the, the, the in, because what I like to do is just go back straight to the artist, and if you read her letters from that period, then you will understand. There may have been cheating involved as well.
0: And I think we have time for, for one last question.
1: Uh, thank you very much. It was a really interesting uh, talk. And actually, I wanted to ask you, uh, I think Georgia O'Keeffe's really admired because she seems like such an independent, strong woman. And was she also, in her time, it always seems like she's very alone, although you know, Ansel Adams and she did have friends. Was she very supportive of other artists? And did she have a community of artists that she kind of met with or went to see when she was all on her own in New Mexico or throughout Mm -hmm. her life? Absolutely. And I think that our idea that O'Keeffe is this lone woman that she sprung out of the Wisconsin landscape the way that Stiglitz wanted to have done, uh, is a construction and it's something that she really builds on when she's in New Mexico the way people photograph her the way she really is sort of a stark small, dark, monumental figure against the landscape, but it is not true she was very social, she was very affable she had a great sense of humor and she was indeed friends with many, many artists Um, I don't know if you've been to Santa Fe, you should go you should go to her homes, you should go stand where she stood it's actually uh, uh, transformative we have to imagine Santa Fe as a place where Agnes Martin and Georgia O'Keeffe were at the same time and they were friends and they would you know Agnes Martin writes about staying over at O'Keeffe's house uh, in the room with the John Maron also a very good friend of O'Keeffe's and that everything in the room matched John Maron painting on the wall um and I will say, and we'll end to this, because I think it's, it's it, for me, it was very profound when I read it. Um, Kusama, Yaoi Yo- 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 Kusama, who, we're going to have a show in the fall, um, was a young artist from Japan who moves to the United States. I think she lives in Seattle at the time. And she writes a letter to O'Keefe, and she says, what should I do? I'm an artist. I want to be an artist. What do you think I should do? And O'Keefe writes back, as she did. She often did. She would respond. She just didn't like it when people showed up at her house uninvited. She really, nobody likes that. Anyway, um, and she writes to Kusama that if you want to be an artist, you know, to really kind of get started, you need to move to New York. And this is what Kusama does in the early 1960s. She moves to New York, and then sort of her career uh, flourishes after that. But in her autobiography, Kusama writes that one day, uninvited George O'Keefe calls her up and says I'm just down the street I'm gonna come and visit you and so uh, she does ten minutes later there's George O'Keeffe in your house um, and what Kusama writes that I thought was was really revealing is that she saw in O'Keefe uh, the profound and proud loneliness of being a great artist And I think that in many ways that is what it means to have such a singular vision, such an inner vision, um, that in fact it can be quite lonely in there.
2: Thank you.